This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Ilya Shapiro. Ilya is a legal scholar, an essayist, and an author who holds degrees from Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago. During our conversation, Ilya talks about his family's life in the Soviet Union, his journey to North America as a child, and his desire to become an American citizen. Ilya also talks about the foundational liberties of American civilization, freedom of speech, classical liberalism, the role and importance of disagreement in a free society, and his being hired as the executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution in early 2022. In January 2022, following a tweet about his views on the Supreme Court vacancy, Ilya was placed on leave and in public has been heckled and shouted down. We talk about that tweet in some detail. This conversation is an attempt to provide some nuance to the controversy surrounding Ilya and to provide a sense of humanity to a man who, whether or not one agrees with his political views, has apologized. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ilya Shapiro. All right, Ilya, um, I am really looking forward to, to talking to you and, and just want to start by saying thanks for making the time. I know this is a, a wild time in your life. Um, so thanks for coming on the show. It's, it's really great to meet you. Yeah, it is a real uh, surreal uh, experience, but I'm, I'm glad to... Uh, to keep talking, to invoke the <laughs> podcast's name, and look forward to to getting into a a real discussion about some important issues. Likewise, and in order to get there, and we've talked about this before we started recording, I would love to get your story uh, documented and to get kind of the trajectory of your life to where you are now um, on record, and to give you an opportunity to share why you became professionally who you are and and maybe it just might start might, might make sense for me to start by asking about your your upbringing and your family um you know you're a legal scholar a well-known libertarian um you know as a as a kid as somebody who was growing up as you think back on your life what what about the ideas that are kind of embedded in the work you do how did they proliferate? How did they percolate in your mind as a young kid that uh, they must have resonated in, in some degree? How do you make sense of that story now? Yeah, as I think back on my life, you're talking to me as if I'm, you know, in the in the end stages uh, <laughs> of it. Uh, by no means, uh, um, I'm I'm in my 40s. My my wife says I still have the maturity of a 14 year old, so you know, keeping, keeping it young and fresh. Um, yeah, uh, I was born in Moscow, Russia. Moscow. Soviet Union, uh, and we immigrated um, in, in 1981 um, uh, during the, the first wave of uh, immigration by Soviet Jews. 
uh, where at the time uh, you had to, my parents had to quit their jobs and wait for an exit visa for a couple of years. Um, my dad had been wanting to leave for a long time. Um, he, uh, he had had a really rough, uh, rough life. His, his father was taken away from him in Stalin's purges uh, during the Second World War, never to be seen again. And he and his mom were exiled to Siberia. He grew up in a in a town there, uh, came back to Moscow uh, when Khrushchev came to power and there was a bit of a of a thawing, uh, as it were. And so he went to, to college, um, uh, became a, a ceramic engineer, material science, chemical engineering, uh, although his path was restricted for, for being Jewish. Uh, my mom, similarly, she was a few years younger than him, uh, born at the tail end of, of the Second World War, uh, grew up uh, in the outskirts of Moscow without running water or, or electricity, uh, still still in that area, if you can imagine. Mm. Uh, this is the suburbs or, or exurbs of, of Moscow, came to, to, to the city for university as well. They met uh, on the job uh, and got married in the late 60s. Um, I was born in the late 70s. Uh, and so as soon as I was born, my dad convinced my mom, finally, yeah, we got to get out of here so he's not growing up under communism. And we spent four months in Italy during the immigration process, not unusual, again, for Soviet Jewry of that time. If you were going to Israel, you kind of went straight after a public health inspection uh, in Vienna by the Red Cross. Uh, otherwise, you went to Italy where there was temporary refugee housing um, in the outskirts of Rome and waited for a visa from some Western country, which we eventually got from Canada. So uh, we came to Canada in October of 1981. And uh, that first year, my parents learned English. And I remember them telling me about, you know, being taught how to go grocery shopping because of literally a foreign uh, concept compared to the Soviet Union. And they eventually got jobs uh, in a small town about an hour and a half from Toronto, uh, working at actually a defense contractor using their skills in material science to work on things like superconductors and uh, piezoelectrics that go into sonar, the interrelationship of pressure and electricity, really fancy stuff. So I, I was good at science fair uh, in those early days. Uh, learned English from Sesame Street and ended up skipping first grade and, and away we went. Um, it was kind of a an idyllic childhood, a small town, about 15,000 people in central Ontario, Canada, R rode my bike all over the place, played sports, did Boy Scouts. The only political thing my parents taught me was that communism was bad. And I sort of took it from there. And, and I got to reading and I, you know, uh, got to appreciate American history, thought I preferred uh, life, liberty and pursuit of happiness to Canada's peace, order and good government. So wanted to uh, immigrate again, immigrate south from a fairly uh, early age, uh, which I uh, eventually did uh, when I started college uh, at Princeton and uh, then uh, got my master's in international relations at the London School of Economics and went to law school at the University of Chicago. But through all of that, you know, reading the, the canon of, of political philosophy, whether the Federalist Papers, John Locke, I was always precocious as a kid getting into all sorts of readings and sending uh, letters to prominent uh, uh, figures, trying to start a conversation. I had a letter to the editor published in Time magazine when I was 13, um, you know, really, really starting to, to, to learn about and have opinions on uh, social science and, and uh, uh, you know, political institutions. Uh, pretty early on, I think I, I decided I wanted to go to law school. Didn't know what exactly I wanted to do with that law degree. I still don't really know uh, what I want to do when I grow up, but I, I have long been interested in legal institutions, political institutions, the rule of law, ended up writing my uh, undergrad thesis at Princeton on uh, comparing constitutional development in Russia and Argentina. I was kind of a 
comparative transitologist, as it were, transitions mm. from authoritarian rule. And as someone who speaks both Russian and Spanish, that's pretty rare. So I could interview people and access primary documents and and things like that. Um, uh, in college, I, I took advantage of various opportunities that were presented to me to enrich my education. Organizations like the Institute for Humane Studies, a, a libertarian group, the uh, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, ISI, a conservative group, basically anybody that wanted to send me on free trips and send me boxes of books, I, I was happy to take them up on on those kinds of opportunities. Yeah. And it's fascinating that we're having this conversation when we are, which is the middle of March of 2022. And the Russian invasion of, of the Ukraine is weeks into the war. And I would I would imagine that you and your father must have shared he must have shared stories about life in the Soviet Union, and it just feels to me like Americans are now again interested in that part of the world in that history. You've already alluded to the fact that your father was no fan of communism, but I I would love to get your take on what you remember him speaking about that system you know the 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 major themes you know let's let's say an american is listening to this who understands and realizes that we had a foe in the soviet union for many decades in the 20th century but doesn't really know the details of what life was often like for citizens or dissidents within the soviet union what do you remember your dad telling you about what sure, life was like there sure. And my dad is uh, thankfully still alive. He's he's 85 and, and still in Toronto. My mom passed when I was in college. But yeah, I, um, like a lot of folks, I have kind of a difficult relationship with my dad. And, and he has a difficult personality shaped by that formative uh, experience where, uh, yeah, he had just uh, just uh, you know, I, I keep learning new things. I was just visiting him with, with my whole family last August when he was when he turned 85. Uh, my wife and my, my two young sons who are, who are four and six, we, we came up and he still told me things from that exile in 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 Kansk, the town of Kansk in, in Siberia. That was just crazy. You know, part of the time living in a barn that was there was a, there was a curtain that that fenced off the animals from the people and that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, these are you know educated people. My 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 grandmother had gone to university. My my grandfather, uh, the one who was taken by Stalin, this is why he was taken. Was very educated. Had been educated in part in Poland and Germany. Spoke six languages. Was a a highly reputed uh, doctor and public health uh, official in Moscow, and so clearly was uh, you know um, uh, the, the, the the fake allegations was that he was trying to uh, poison the the Moscow water supply at the time as part of the the, the doctor's plot, and he was Jewish. That didn't hurt. That didn't help uh, either. But anyway, um, my dad just talked to me about the the privations. You know, living in Moscow, the the richest part of of this you know global power, and yet. Um, you never knew what you could get, what kind of fresh food you could get at the grocery store. People just lined up every day and you never know what you were lining up for. You would buy whatever was available that was fresh. Sometimes it was, you know, uh, oranges, uh, very rarely because that had to come from some, somewhere, somewhere South. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes it was, um, you know, typically there weren't bread shortages uh, that much, at least, uh, you know, in the, in the seventies and, and eighties, but, uh, you know, all sorts of you, you. You just lined up and got whatever you could, whatever you could have, uh, or clothes or shoes. You didn't know again which size was going to be available of shoes, what color, what anything. But if you needed it, you, you know, you lined up and you you tried to get it. Um, and 
where we lived in Moscow. Um, it was a communal apartment. About a third to 40% of Muscovites lived in communal apartments, meaning you shared that apartment with someone who wasn't a member of your family. So we had a one bedroom apartment. My parents and I uh, lived in the living room. Um, the uh, A little old lady uh, lived in, in the bedroom and we shared the the bathroom and the kitchen. And again, that was not atypical. And this is for people who are you know, quote unquote, middle class, educated. You know, my parents were engineers. That was, um, you know, Mos- Moscow was a relatively uh, educated, uh, again, the wealthiest city, but that was not an uncommon um, uh, experience. And just the the opportunities for, uh, for for doing anything. My parents being Jewish, you know, they were steered into uh, engineering and science. Uh, you know, they couldn't go into other things, studying international relations or uh, all of these sorts of things, which is why when I eventually, you know, in, in my teenage years, I at some, at some point told them like, mom, dad, you know, I, I know you've helped me a lot. And I've been very good at math and science, but I'm just not into that as much as I am into the <laughs> the history and the literature and the politics and, and all of that. And they're like, that's great. You know, we, we, we brought you here so that you could, you could have uh, freedom in, in, in choosing your path, but, but you have to understand we can't help you with those things. And I said, that's all right. I, I I'll, I'll take it from here. Uh, but just the, um, you know, what they taught me was to be grateful for my opportunities and to, uh, you know, never forget that freedom is not man's natural state. And it's, <laughs> it's uh, in fact, uh, historically, um, you know, we weren't, uh, humans were, were, were not free. Uh, and there's different kinds of authoritarianism and, and, and tyranny and, and, you know, rule and, and whatnot. And certainly communist Russia was, was its own kind. And bringing it back to what you opened with, uh, the Ukraine war, you know, I don't think Putin's trying to put the USSR back together. I don't think he's his ideology is, you know, communism, but he is trying to put the Russian Empire together. Yeah. And, um, you know, just because you're authoritarian doesn't mean you're communist, of course. But uh, that is uh, long been part of sort of the, the Russian ruling class, um, uh, you know, more hierarchy, people who are generally more interested in security than liberty. And, and the ruling class uh, takes advantage of that. Uh, I think, you know, Putin's miscalculated in, in what he's doing here. I'm not exactly sure what his long-term plan might be. Uh, but, but in any event, uh, these sorts of uh, mentality of, of those who gain power and why they gain power in Russia is, is not really anything new. Yeah. And you just said this, that it's, while he may not be trying to piece together the, the, the block that was the former Soviet Union, he, he does have the authoritarianism that in my reading of Russian history has is kind of often baked into that history and into that civilization. And I'm wondering, you know, this is going to go mostly to a Western audience um, for people, myself included, who have never lived under a rule like that, uh, has, has lived in the West, has lived in uh, the United States, you know, I think it's important for, especially with what's going on in the world, for us to imagine what it is like as a quote unquote normal person to be living under a system like that. What what sort of privileges that you give up when you are living under such a system? And you just alluded to the fact that often it's a preference for security over liberty. But I, I would I would love for you to to speak about that specifically of. Uh, you know, a lot, hundreds of millions of people, if not more in the world are living under authoritarian systems, uh, more than that. What do you think someone like a, a naive Westerner who has lived 
a, a life that is typical of a, mid, a middle-class American would quickly discover upon entering a system like that and attempting to live a continuation of the life that they have they have been living in a country like the U.S. Um, freedom of speech is is most notable, I think. Um, you know, Putin sort of made a deal with the professional class of whom the oligarchs, the very uh, ultra wealthy, are you know the tip of the sphere. But the the basic deal was, you know, you can. Uh, in a very corrupt sometimes manner, um, achieve economic success and, and professional advancement, but don't you dare criticize the regime uh, in any way. Um, now with Ukraine, I, I saw this, I don't know if you saw this viral video of a, a woman was holding up just a uh, a blank poster and got yes. arrested. Um, or there's another one I think was holding up a poster that said two words, literally in Russian, it said two words and got arrested. Um, uh, you know, those are most, the most extreme cases because it's in the middle of a war, kind of a sensitive period. But if you posted on even, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, if you posted on Facebook, you know, some criticism of, of Putin, of the ruling class of, of, of anything of, of Russian policy, um, you might get visited by the police. Um, not quite the KGB sending you down to some dungeon or the gulag, but you know, they'll tell you to knock it off and and you can. Mm-hmm. You get the message or slowly but surely you might, you know, get fired at work or you, you know, there are consequences. Uh, again, not the torture chambers of, of Stalin, but, um, you know, along that continuum. Yeah. I want to transition to your own intellectual development, your, per, your own personal development. And you've spoken about the journey from Russia to Italy to Canada and eventually to the U.S. And I'm wondering for, for yourself, as you remember that period of your own life, you know, it does sound like these, the ethos of the country, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness resonated with you. You could have, it sounds like, lived out a peaceable life in Canada. What was it about the country? And maybe it is simply that general spirit of, of U.S. culture that wanted you to become an American. But what about the U.S. spoke to you personally at that time that, that made you move here, um, live here, work here? Well, there's a philosophical and there's kind of a, a a personal pragmatic point to it. The philosophical one is, as I was reading the history books and the stories of the heroes, you know, George Washington and the Revolutionary War and the, the framing of the Constitution, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, and the new birth of freedom, uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, I was growing up in the Reagan years and how he talked about the evil empire, which, of course, we and my family hated. Um, and so Reagan was a great hero as he was to most uh, uh, emigres from the Soviet Union. Um, and I thought, this is great. This is, you know, you can tell uh, what the ethos of the country is. Um, it's, uh, you know, no country is perfect. And there certainly were low points and, uh, uh, and things like that. But uh, trying to become the city on the hill, trying to become the, the last best hope of freedom on earth, that inspired me. In Canada, it wasn't that, you know, I disliked it, but it, it seemed it seemed a little dry and boring and go with the flow. And I, I was much more, I thought of myself as, you know, I wanted to, as a little kid, to be, you know, a, a protagonist in in the story of, a, of advancing uh, uh, liberty and, 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 and things like that. Um, uh, so that kind of kind of philosophical uh, inspiration. And then more practically, um, I thought about, well, if I want to, 
in whatever field I go into, it seems like there's more opportunity in the United States. If I want to become, whether it's rich or famous or have an impact, uh, whether it's the world of ideas or, <laughs> or if I want to be a professional athlete, you know, growing up as a kid playing sports, well, it seems like all of that is in uh, is in the United States. And the, the weather didn't hurt. Very early on, you know, as, as a Russian kid, and I, I'm an expert on cold uh, weather, and my expert opinion is that uh, I don't like it very much. Uh, and you know, you can play hockey. I love hockey. I've had season tickets to the Washington Capitals for 15 years now. You can go indoors to play hockey or watch hockey. I, I like to ski now. I acquired skiing as, a, as an adult. But you fly to skiing, whether that's in Colorado or, or Vermont. So I have no use for cold and snow. And uh, and so that that uh, once I discovered Florida, that was an additional uh, impetus, <laughs> I guess, to move south. I would imagine your parents and yourself share some pretty basic political views with one another, but maybe that is incorrect. And you spoke about earlier the fact that you, for college, went to Princeton. I, I know you did a lot of graduate work as well. Did you, you know, as you become this precocious, bookish young man, are reading a lot of history, are into the social sciences, did you, are the beliefs that you held when you were 18 essentially the same that you primarily hold today? What what was that arc, that trajectory like for you as an, intellectually in your beliefs? I think so. You know, a, a lot of people have an ideological journey. I'm not sure I've had that much of one. Um, I've certainly, you know, deepened my understanding and education and 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 all that as, as one would expect. Um, uh, you know, I like to say that I'm, you know, pretty much the same as I was around uh, when I was 18, except I've, I've read a few more books and I'm <laughs> less shy around, uh, around girls. Um, but, um, just the thirst for knowledge and the thirst for becoming a, a part of, uh, of this, this, the American story, the American dream, um, you know, just, just, uh, you know, hearing about, well, uh, educationally speaking, Harvard and Princeton and, and other top schools wanting to go there, watching shows, TV shows like head of the class, uh, um, and, and others that sort of, uh, resonated with me about, you know, I want to be, I want to, I want to assimilate. I want to become an American teenager and eventually an adult and, and, and pursue that happiness and, and be the absolute best and, um, uh, and, and be grateful and take advantage of the opportunities that my parents gave to me through, through a lot of personal sacrifice. I mean, I was very cognizant from an early age, my dad was 45 when we immigrated. My mom was 38. I mean, can you imagine coming to a new country, a new system, a new regime, a new language? Mm. Uh, and at that time, uh, thinking that you'd never see uh, your old country or your parents uh, uh, ever again. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really remarkable. So I felt, you know, not, not a guilt, but I felt a, a sense of I, I have to make the most of my opportunities and uh, ideologically speaking, I mean, I thought I was sort of, you know, conservative without the religion, or I mm -hmm. thought, you know, well, Locke and the founders, that all sounds good, whatever that before I even knew, you know, the labels, uh, I just thought, well, you know, that American idea, yeah, this Constitution thing, that sounds pretty good. Uh, you know, the early understanding of separation of powers and federalism, again, I was kind of nerdy in that way, although I played enough sports that I didn't get beat up uh, for it. But uh uh, that was that was the path, and and you know, I eventually I think uh, call myself classical liberal, um, uh, 
prefer that a little bit to, to, to libertarian. And I think I'd probably stick to that. You know, how that how that works practically can change because the problems of the Reagan era are different than the problems that we face now and so require different different solutions. Uh, but uh, I am one of the rare people who I, I don't think I had any conversion story or, you know, uh, significant uh, change of course in terms of my political beliefs. Yeah. The, the term classical liberal is one I, I have you know, studied a little bit and, and am familiar with, but I, I don't know that that is particularly well known by the American population as to what that means and how that might be related to what we traditionally are you know, referred to as um, libertarians. How do you make sense of that? What, what is it about? You know, first, what, how do you define what a classical liberal is? And, and how do you think there is a, a line between that belief the beliefs of a classical liberal and the spirit of America that drew you here in the first place. I think a classical liberal fundamentally, you know, believes in, in ordered Liberty uh, and that the government was created to um, secure and protect uh, our freedoms. uh, And, you know, that life, Liberty and pursuit of happiness, not a guarantee of, of result, not a guarantee of riches or any other outcome, but uh, to allow everyone to, achieve their best state of, of, of human flourishing and give, give the opportunity for that. And that includes everything from the freedom of speech and expression and religion, what we think of as the First Amendment, uh, to uh, economic and property rights, the ability to earn an honest living, the ability to keep the fruits of your labor is a very, uh, you know, John Lockean uh, sensibility, uh, the ability to, to have freedom of contract without uh, undue burdens or regulations from the state that, that prevents you from uh, uh, achieving the the, the voluntary uh, gains of trade with with others, um, the ability to protect that, uh, you know, armed self defense, the Second Amendment. It's not about you know being a, a a gun nut or something, but it's fundamentally about your your natural rights to protect the fruits of those labors which you've achieved through the the opportunities to protect to um, to uh, achieve human flourishing. Um, those very, you know, general things coming out of the Enlightenment uh, as yeah. a response to um, the, you know, uh, the 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 ancient, the more ancient uh, you know, pre-Enlightenment conceptions of conservatism in terms of throne and altar and authority, um, uh, things like that, and also as as uh, contraposed to more modern, what in America is now called liberal, uh, but really is is progressive or Marxist kind of thought where. Um, the state does try to uh, equalize uh, outcome and, and divides people into classes or racial categories or, or other uh, group uh, metrics. So, you know, classical liberals are, are focused on, on individual liberty. And, uh, you know, where you differentiate that from libertarian, it, it, it really depends. And it's the, the labels become less significant. I, I sort of think that, that libertarians have a little less respect for traditions and institutions than classical liberals do. Um, the idea that, um, Sometimes there's a fence or a barrier. Well, think about why that arose and investigate that. Uh, you, you can't just be completely uh, uh, anarchistic or against rules or against uh, things. You have to really um, think about uh, uh, how those evolved uh, as the common law uh, has. You know, we have mm-hmm. rules uh, for a reason. Sometimes those rules no longer make sense or were put in for illiberal reasons, meaning to protect certain interests or, or oligarchs or, or what have you, in which case absolutely get rid of them. But, um, you know, the, the, the classical liberal has an interest in, in ordered liberty and the, and the rule of law, uh, in order to protect that, uh, life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And as you're developing that 
outlook and that belief system about your own political views. I'm wondering, you, you already mentioned George Washington and the revolution, but who were your heroes? Who were the people you, you mentioned Ronald Reagan already in this conversation? Historically, who are the people in your mind that embodied this, the spirit of cla- classical liberalism and why do you think they matter so much to history, to a flourishing civilization? You know, I've mentioned a few of them, you know, George Washington fighting for uh, America. He's not known uh, in this as, as, a, as a philosopher, more as a statesman, but of course, statesmen are important too. Uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, uh, Abraham Lincoln, I, I mentioned, and uh, the Enlightenment philosophers, um, you know, I had, a, I had really good history teachers. I, I went to one of the best uh, high schools in, in Canada called the University of Toronto Schools. Um, and got to read a lot of uh, both ancient and modern philosophy, uh, political philosophy. Um, you know, those were my, you know, what I built on uh, philosophically. John Stuart Mill, um, uh, you know, the, the, the 19th century uh, philosophers and, and, and writers. Um, the, the, the classical canon of uh, what we now think of as, as, I guess, libertarian and conservative um, intellectual heroes. Yeah. And the reason why those people, right? I mean, you said this earlier in the conversation that freedom is, I think you said it's something like the exception to the rule. Um, You know, the state of affairs in the country that we both live in is not the norm and is really the gross exception, as I read history, to um, what an individual um, is granted in terms of its his or her ability to to live a relatively free life when you read those people you know the the abraham lincolns the john stuart mills uh, or when you think about them what do you think they why do you think they matter so much what do you think that they were carrying in their brain and in their hearts that you know resonates with you as as a human being as somebody who wants to live a, a flourishing life Yeah, the, the reason why uh, a, a relatively free society is, is rare in human existence uh, is because it takes hard work. It's, this, it's the same reason why man's natural state is poverty. It's mm. not, you know, people sometimes ask, what causes poverty? That gets the question backwards. It's what's, what causes economic growth? Uh, because for millennia, really until, you know, the 16, 1700s, um, per capita income, life expectancy, any of these measures really didn't, uh, didn't change significantly in, in any part of the world. Yeah, there were discoveries and there were uh, great civilizations of various kinds in terms of literature and, and the you know, written texts that, that, that we have. But in terms of the average person's well-being, not much changed uh, until there was an inflection point. And the inflection point was the Enlightenment. It was the, uh, the miracle, as, as Jonah Goldberg put it, uh, in his uh, masterful tome, Suicide of the West, where things just took off in some places, you know, the Scottish Enlightenment, the English Enlightenment, uh, the uh, international trade in smaller countries like Holland, um, you know, the French Revolution and how it deviated and, and, and didn't realize the same things as, as the American uh, Revolution or the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, uh, creating rules of the game that were not arbitrary, that were actual rules and not just the whims of whoever the rulers were, that's significant. That allows people to plan their personal and, 
and and professional affairs because they know that that contract they sign is going to be enforced and they know that they can plan their business in such and such a way that it's not just going to be taken away from them and so there's long-term planning um, which uh, allows for um, uh, gains from investment of of resources of labor um, that if you you know if you don't know uh, what's going to happen tomorrow then then you consume whatever you produce immediately um, and you know that that kind of legal regime allowed the industrial revolution allowed the inventions that were time saving that um, allowed uh, more productive uses of capital those those early those early years of of capitalism and capitalism by which I mean not some sort of you know uh, amassing uh, great uh, wealth but uh, freeing up people to become more productive uh, to uh, use their ingenuity to to create more wealth and flourishing and Adam Smith another classical philosopher an early economist who talked about the invisible hand which is that if you have stable rules of the game then everybody pursuing their individual um, interest will uh, raise all boats uh, in effect uh, because if you come up with a wonderful invention being hit be it the uh, the steam engine or be it the uh, the iPhone uh, you know you're doing that for your own interest you're going to get wealthy but look how many people's lives are are improved uh, thereby and that's all through voluntary transactions it's not through uh, a king or or other ruler or lord commanding you to to, to produce that uh, that invention it's it's the incentives that are already there because you can visualize that you can then market it and sell it and and uh, do well by doing good yeah We've talked about you you going to Princeton, and, and as I remember your biography, I think the trajectory is Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago for law school. Um, if that is correct, I, I'd love to get from your own biography the story of your own thinking at the time as you're going to these incredible institutions as to what you want to do with your life. Um, you know, you have these intellectual heroes, you have this interest in history. What did you want to do? You know, you already yeah. said this earlier that you're still trying to figure this out. But um, <laughs> how did you think you would spend your time, your talents, your energy at that phase of your life? So I, I, I was desperate when I was a kid, when I was in high school, to go to the best schools so that I could, you know, again uh, achieve my parents' dream, uh, achieve my own dream, uh, make sure that I wasn't facing the economic pressures that my parents did in in Canada, let alone in the Soviet Union, um, uh, to, you know, to take advantage of this great gift that I'd been uh, given. And when I was in high school, again, I was I was fortunate to get into uh, uh, one of the best schools uh, in the country. Uh, uh, a few uh, uh, friends who are a year or two ahead of me ended up going to Princeton among the various uh, great options that they had. And I saw the Woodrow Wilson School, which uh, that name has since been stripped. Uh, I've long said they should rename it after George Schultz, who's a, who's a Princeton alum, uh, you know, recently passed away at age 100. Um, but I, I wanted to do some sort of interdisciplinary studies, interdisciplinary work that combined um, uh, foreign affairs, politics, economics, law, all of these different things. Uh, uh, I was into languages. I grew up speaking uh, Russian at home uh, and then took uh, French and Latin and Spanish in high school and, and wanted to travel 
ended up studying abroad in college in Buenos Aires, uh, took uh, Portuguese for Spanish speakers as well. And then I took Italian in law school. So try to you know, gain more and more uh, understanding of both uh, culture and especially politics through the original sources. Um, and what I wanted to do was, you know, I thought I'd have a career that combined in some way or rotated through public sector, private sector, nonprofit, teaching, writing, uh, all of these different sorts of things. You know, I, I consumed a lot of different uh, books and magazines and and uh, uh, movies and TV shows. And I just had this thirst for for that kind of knowledge and understanding and and wanting to contribute to that uh, in some way. How how exactly that would pan out, I wasn't sure. Um, I was somewhat restricted in that you know, I didn't have U.S. citizenship. I didn't have a green card. I wouldn't get a green card until... Uh, what is it, uh, 12 years ago now, 13 years ago, I've now been a citizen for seven years. Mm. Um, uh, and so I couldn't, you know, have kind of a, a vagabond youth or, or some sort of bohemian, uh, you know, interregnum between college and grad school or anything like that. While I found myself, I had to, to be able to stay in the country. I had to have some sort of student visa or, or, or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, I wanted to write, I wanted to, uh, contribute to discussions of of public affairs. Uh, when I got to law school, I heard about these great opportunities called clerkships, where you could you know, work with a judge, which was I ended up doing with a with a Fifth Circuit judge in in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a fascinating experience and really uh, applied the theory of of law school to the to the uh, the road of of practice. Um, uh, and um, you know, from there, went to a couple of law firms. But I kept writing on the side. It was presented with the opportunity to join the Cato Institute because I kept attending think tank lectures and and Capitol Hill cocktail parties and things like that to keep abreast of, of policy and political ties. And in a way, went my career into a, a different direction where I sort of did uh, all of these different aspects um, uh, at the same time. Um, and after a certain point, getting on 15 years at, at Cato, um, I thought, you know, I'm still a young enough man. I, I want to have a different kind of impact and um, got an opportunity to uh, to become executive director of uh, Georgetown uh, Law Center's Center for the Constitution and, and, and build a, a new type of uh, of institution. And, you know, we'll see we'll see how far I'm I'm able to to take that. But again, the goal is to have this interdisciplinary sort of life to have impact on the world of ideas and policy and uh, I haven't had the opportunity to work uh, directly in uh, in government other than as an intern for then uh, freshman Senator Bill Frist back in 97, 25 years ago, uh, and as a, as a law clerk to, to Judge Grady Jolly of the, of the Fifth Circuit. But uh, uh, that's something that, that's in the back of my mind if I'm able to serve, I don't know, in the White House Counsel's Office or uh, Justice Department or, or or something like that, or the State Department taking advantage of my understanding of international relations and law. Uh, that might be something I'd, I'd want to pursue in the future. But but again, the, the goal is uh, to uh, to have an interesting career to contribute to the life of this country and the ideas that made it great. Yeah. And I want to get into your time at Cato and, and obviously um, Georgetown as well. But I, there's a part of that story that I have to get you to to talk about a little bit you're a, a Russian Jewish immigrant going to Mississippi. Um, what do you remember about that time in your life, you know, culturally and also work-wise? Uh, I think there was a bit of a smirk on your face as you were talking about that phase, but what do you remember about that time living down there? I had a, a great time. It was a, both personally and professionally, 
professionally, it was a turning point. Um, my study abroad in Argentina, I should, I should say, which was, I guess, four years before that, I was a sophomore in, in college, was eye-opening as well as my first real time living by myself. I mean, college doesn't really count, especially a place like Princeton that pampers you and there's all the support staff. And you know, I was on heavy scholarship and, and, and things like that. You're kind of in, in this orange bubble, as Princeton students call it. But hmm. when I was studying abroad, there was culture shock, learning the new language, you know, getting proficient in it. Um, and um, uh, having new types of experiences, that was, you know, that's, a, that's definitely a, you know, a maturation uh, point, as was my clerkship, uh, you know, first year, uh, not in an educational environment, uh, since I started school, because I went straight through college, grad school, then, then law school. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty culturally adaptable. Uh, and um, uh, my, my, my first day on the job was my second day in Mississippi, uh, but uh, I already owned seersucker suits and I'd already <laughs> known the jurisprudence of, uh, you know, read into my judge's jurisprudence and knew the sorts of issues that the Fifth Circuit was facing. So I wasn't naive in that way. And part of my goal of going there was to live. Part of my goal for clerking in general was to live in a part of the country where I wouldn't otherwise um, and where it doesn't snow. So I, I generally shied away from major metropolitan areas Um uh, and got this great opportunity. Judge Jolly was just a wonderful professional mentor. I, I st- I'm still in touch with him. Um, in fact, I owe him a call this week. We haven't talked in about a month, uh, but we generally do. Uh, and just just learning, um, uh, applying that legal knowledge that I was fortunate and privileged to to gain at Chicago uh, to actual cases. And in in my free time, um, discovering the the Deep South. You know, going Jackson itself. Uh, isn't one of America's great cities, I'd say, but uh, it's very well positioned. It's, um, you know, of course, I spent a lot of time in New Orleans because that's where the Fifth Circuit sits. So I went there, I think, 14 times for a total of six weeks. Uh, and that was very uh, uh, eye-opening. But Memphis, Dallas, Birmingham, other parts of Mississippi, Oxford, I've, I've been an adjunct professor at Ole Miss Law School, for that matter, the last few years. Love going to, to Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, which is easy to get to because you can fly to Memphis from just about anywhere in a direct flight. And then it's just an hour drive. So Mm. easier to get to Oxford than Jackson even. Um, But, you know, really got to know the history, the, the, the culture, great barbecue joints, you know, all of, all of these sorts of things, even minor league hockey. Now, you know, I'm still big, big hockey fanatic. And even though Jackson's minor league team had actually shut down the year before I got there, but there was a team in Biloxi. So believe it or not, I would, do the two and a half hour drive down to Biloxi and to go to a hockey game. And then um, would never overnight because I you know, couldn't afford to stay in, in hotels randomly, but uh, I'd get the, uh, the free or, or very cheap uh, casino steak uh, dinner and then drive back home. So it was a very, <laughs> very interesting period. Yeah. Sounds like it. And, and then, uh, you know, as I, again, as I was doing some research for this conversation, you know, your time at Cato was rather extensive. It was far more than a decade, as, as I understand it, um, of you being at that institution. And for people who are not familiar with what the objectives are of Cato, how would you describe that? What are they up to? What are their their goals? Cato is the nation's foremost libertarian think tank, meaning public policy research foundation or, or institute. And uh, what a think tank is, uh, is some people call it a a college or university without students. That's not quite right, uh, because you're not just doing purely academic work. Um, uh, I liken my 
role uh, as being at the intersection of the academic, legal, political, and and media worlds. So mm. straddling all of that, trying to influence and and uh, be an interlocutor uh, among them. So I did everything from uh, law review articles, academic articles, to uh, blog posts and op-eds. Um, did a lot of TV and other media commenting to, to journalists on, on the uh, issues of the day regarding constitutional law, legal policy, the Supreme Court, uh, meetings on the Hill about uh, legal policy or nominations, traveling the country to debate law professors or give speeches to student or, or business groups. Um, it was a, a big smorgasbord for me personally, and Cato more broadly um, tries to influence the climate of ideas in a libertarian direction um, across uh, the, the whole host of policy areas from foreign policy to tax and education and healthcare. Uh, I was in constitutional studies. Eventually, I became director and, and vice president for constitutional studies. But when I started there in the fall of 2007, um, I was, I think, uh, I had just turned 30 and I was the youngest senior fellow in, in town, I think. Hmm. Um, uh, eventually, as I said, was, was promoted to director of the center and, and then vice president. And uh, and left to take a, a really a unique opportunity uh, at Georgetown after nearly 15 years uh, at Cato. Uh, and it's, it's not that I was not that I was pushed out, but I was certainly just came to a point in my career where I was looking for a new challenge. Uh, mm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I could have stayed at Cato for for a while, but uh, or, or for the rest of my career, for that matter. Uh, but I felt like I'd, I'd put out a, a book that was an Amazon bestseller and gotten a lot of acclaim coming out in paperback this summer. Uh, for those of you watching at home, you can see behind my shoulder, my, my book actually, Supreme Disorder, Judicial yep. Nominations and the Politics of America's High Court uh, coming out in paperback this summer. And it's you know uh, kind of an evergreen. I, I think it'll be in the news uh, whenever there's a Supreme Court vacancy as we are, as we have now. Um, uh, but, but beyond that... Um, you know, uh, regularly going on TV and uh, and and you know building my own personal brand on on top of Cato's, uh, I sort of felt like I'd, I'd achieved a lot there, and and it was time for a for a new opportunity. But but again, Cato more broadly is within the DC or national think tank um, uh, ecosystem. Uh, is uh, covers the the broad range of policy issues. Some think tanks focus just on foreign policy or healthcare or what have you. Cato is the broad range. And this is from a libertarian perspective, whereas, for example, the Heritage Foundation is conservative. Brookings, uh, one of the oldest think tanks, is sort of center left technocratic. Uh, AEI, American Enterprise Institute, is center right. Um, center for American Progress is progressive and a little more partisan uh, on the left. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities that, that that Cato gave me to to, to flourish uh, professionally. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm ready for the next chapter. Yeah. I was just going to transition to that, which is that it, it, it sounds like you were ready for something new. And this is probably a good time to transition into the Georgetown opportunity. And it might help be helpful to start by getting you to speak to why the opportunity matter to you? What did you want to do there? And why, why would you leave such a seemingly interesting and, and cushy position at Cato to to join Georgetown in the way that you did? Um, yeah. Uh, so how this came about was, um, I guess, last October or so, or even before that, uh, in over the summer, I think in August, I was invited to apply 
to the deanship at the University of Tennessee Law School, um, which I didn't end up being close to being hired for that. But just the fact of being asked and putting materials together got me thinking of, huh, if people are thinking of me for those kinds of roles, maybe I should think really outside the box about what I want to do with the rest of my professional career, which hopefully will last, you know, many more decades. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, uh, I was, my eyes were a little open to, uh, opportunities. And, and one evening in October, I was, I was having dinner with, with Randy Barnett, um, who's a storied professor at, at Georgetown law. Uh, one of my longtime mentors, uh, he was, called the godfather of the legal challenge to Obamacare back in 2010, uh, is certainly one of the uh, leaders of the libertarian uh, legal uh, movement in the, in the pantheon there. And, uh, and we got to talking over this dinner because I'd hosted him at a, at a program that Cato uh, sponsored on, on Capitol Hill, and we had dinner afterwards. And we got to talking, and, and you know he wants to elevate his Center for the Constitution at Georgetown. And he began thinking, Huh, if I'm looking for a, a new and different sort of opportunity, this might be uh, an interesting thing to pursue. And eventually one thing led to another. And in, in January, I got a formal offer letter from the, the dean at Georgetown Law, uh, Bill Trainer, to become executive director uh, of the Center for the Constitution and senior lecturer. Uh, and that would be to teach one class each semester, one uh, uh, alternating kind of a an academic constitutional law topic uh, with a more practical skills, amicus brief writing, because I'd, I'd filed hundreds of amicus briefs while at Cato, uh, legal policy strategy, those sorts of things, uh, while building the center out to be um, have a higher profile, more programming, both for students and professors, but also uh, judges and practitioners, more publications, lots of different things, kind of an all of the above sort of charge to really make it a uh, you know, even more than it is the preeminent uh, one-stop shop for uh, constitutional interpretation, originalism, uh, those sorts of things. I thought that was a uh, a unique opportunity and and worth uh, taking um, uh, the step of 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 leaving my home of nearly 15 years at Cato to just move. Well, it turns out you know geographically just a few blocks down the road, down Massachusetts Ave to Georgetown. Yeah. And if I heard you correctly, and I understand the chronology of this, this is this is this year, this is 2022, January of 2022, where this transition in your own life occurs. Is is that correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, we we've covered a decent amount of ground and talked about your beliefs, your interests, and just selfishly for me personally, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is about what has happened in your life in the last two, two and a half months. I know we need to be careful about what we do and do not do not talk about here. So I will let you lead on <laughs> what you feel comfortable speaking to. But I, I thought it might be helpful for me to just read out and quote the now notorious tweet that you sent, um, I think in February of 2022, may have been January, January 26th. January 26th. And I'll read it. I should preface this before I, I do so that, uh, and this is a subject that I want to I talk to you about as well. You know, I, I think you have already admitted that uh, the way it, this may have been phrased may have been unartful. 
um, you've apologized for some of the misinterpretations that you feel like people have taken uh, about it. Let me just read it. And then I want to get your take uh, on it so that you can speak to it in as much detail as you would like. As you said, I think late, late January of 2022. And this is related to something you've already talked about, which is the vacancy on the Supreme Court, which is currently um, open. And this is from you. Objectively, best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan, who is solid, pro- solid prog, solid, solid progressive and V smart, very smart. Even has identity politics benefit of being f- first Asian Indian American but alas, doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy. So we'll get lesser black woman. Thank heaven for small favors, question mark. So this was almost two months ago that that was, that you wrote that. And, you know, maybe it makes sense for, to start with getting your memory of the writing the tweet itself and then the aftermath in the days and weeks following this. And I should also say that you have a sizable Twitter following. I think you have more than 40,000 people who follow you. So it's it's not a, a small audience that it will get your take on what you're publishing on that platform. I'd love to get your thoughts maybe first on what drove you to write that in the first place and then what you remember after it was published. I think my audience at the time was about 34,000. <laughs> another seven cents Uh, yeah um uh yeah so uh i was actually in the air to austin texas when uh news of justice Breyer's retirement leaked Uh, and i landed and my phone was exploding because well of just the news and people asking me for my opinion media asking me for my opinion uh the standard thing that has now happened for you know uh, the last number of vacancies, because uh, this is what I do professionally, and I've built myself into one of the nation's uh, experts on on Supreme Court confirmation battles. Uh, and so I, I put out a statement, I put out a blog post um, that's still on on Cato's website that you can read. Um, I did some some radio interviews, um, and then I've had a couple of meetings. The purpose of my trip to Austin was to have some meetings and also to attend a friend's uh, celebratory uh, uh, dinner for his career transition, uh, ironically enough, or, or in parallel, um, walked back to my hotel from that dinner, um, in a, in a festive and, and feisty mood and was sort of uh, doom scrolling, as they say, uh, going through my, my Twitter feed. You know, if I was at home, if I wasn't on a, on a road trip, then I, I wouldn't be doing this because I'd be with my wife. I would have you know helped put my kids to bed and I would not be, you know, on my phone right before going to bed. Uh, but I was sort of uh, getting uh, more and more upset with with President Biden's uh, restricting his pool of candidates by race and gender. You know, he mm. famously, even as a candidate on the campaign trail uh, in the primary, said that he would nominate a black woman. Uh, and I, I thought that was inappropriate and wrong. I don't like judging people based on race and gender. And so that's uh, how I uh, expressed that sentiment, which was uh, inartful. And as you read it, you could tell it's kind of stilted. There were some prepositions missing there, some articles, perhaps. It's the nature of Twitter, you know. Uh, that that hell site does not allow you to fully express yourself as on a on a blog post or a or an op ed. It 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 is the incentive is for hot takes, you know, something quick uh, and snarky that will get uh, people's attention. And so that's that's what happened with that. And and obviously, what I what I was uh, saying is that uh, since 
I thought uh, Chief Judge Srinivasan of the D.C. Circuit, who's very well known, very well reputed, was on uh, uh, President Obama's shortlist when, when Merrick Garland ultimately got the nomination in 2016. Judge Srinivasan was, was one of those who was uh, considered as a finalist then. So anyway, I, you know, in running through my head, because I knew very well, because again, this is what I follow, um, of, of, of who would be uh, any Democratic president would be considering, I thought, you know, Sri was going to be the best, but alas, he couldn't be considered because of this racial and gender limitation. And so we will less end up with a less qualified, but I had to shorten that to lesser, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in the con- character constraints of Twitter, um, black women. And, uh, and then I went to bed, I tweeted that out and I went to bed and I woke up the next morning, January 27th, and all hell had, had broken loose on, uh, on social media. Um, and eventually, um, this was four days before I was supposed to start five days before I was supposed to start Georgetown, February 1st it was the beginning of my contract, but ultimately I was, um, uh, I was onboarded, uh, that February 1st, uh, but placed on paid administrative leave. Uh, pending investigation into whether my social media commentary violated Georgetown's policies on discrimination and uh, uh, harassment. Um, and that investigation is ongoing. Yeah. We're again having this conversation in mid-March of 2022. And there is, as, as you've already alluded to, there, there's no resolution that has happened at this point. But in as much detail as you are comfortable with and and uh, are able to um how do how do you think back to that what sounds like a rather flippant uh comment that maybe you even made on your phone as you're traveling in a different city i mean you've had a lot of time to <laughs> think about this over the last month and a half um how how do you think about this personally at, at this point and as a greater symbol of our culture right now you know you're not the first person to have unartfully have written something online and had the amount of blowback that you have what does it say about the state of our discourse right now that um you know these mediums can have such immediate consequences for people who, as you said, are not giving nuanced, long-form conversational interviews like we're having right now that are you know, incentivized to provide their feedback on within 280 characters. Um, any thoughts you have on that? I would love to hear. Yeah. If I was giving a state of the discourse address, I would say that the state of the discourse is toxic. We simply, on any controversial issue, uh, cannot have uh, a reasoned, good faith uh, discussion. Um, there's an instant assumption of, of, of bad faith on your political adversaries, um, an instant attempt at, at um, using gotcha moments um, that the Twitter mob, the social media mob forms immediately. I mean, around the same time as, as my uh, scandal erupted. Whoopi Goldberg was suspended for what some people call anti-Semitism. I didn't think she was anti-Semitic. I thought she was simply didn't know the history very well of, of the Holocaust and things like that. Uh, Joe Rogan with you know so-called COVID misinformation. I mean, it's just you know not the way that that we should be discussing important issues in the 21st century. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, I, th- I think it points to how social media and other developments uh, have, while enhancing the ability to get information out and, and, and people to learn about things, has harmed the quality of our discourse uh, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, I couldn't have had this scandal because I wouldn't there, there, you know, I I wouldn't have written an op-ed or even a blog post 10 years ago uh, of the sort of what I tweeted. I wouldn't be, you know, late at night, right before going to bed, I wouldn't be like, Oh, let me just go on uh, NBC news and, and uh, express myself in this manner. Um, So uh, as the barriers to expression have lowered and, you know, that's a good thing in, in very many senses because, um, it's, it's enhanced, uh, uh, freedom of speech. It's, it's not, you don't just have to go through the gatekeepers at the op-ed page at the New York times or the wall street journal to make your opinion known. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, at a time when there is polarization in Congress, when the parties have become more separated and, and ideologically sorted than, uh, yeah, at least the civil war. Um, we're in this period where we just can't uh, discuss controversial issues um, as adults. And I've sort of become swept, uh, swept into that. Yeah. And now that we are having this conversation, and again, I, I will preface this by saying there, there may be aspects of this that you, you know, don't feel comfortable talking about or can't legally talk about at this juncture. What, what were you trying to, and you've already stated this to some degree, what were you trying trying to get across in that statement what's the fleshed out version of what you were attempting to say in that tweet that it's wrong to limit people limit candidates for high public office really any office um based on immutable characteristics like race and gender uh and that that it was it was joe biden it was it was the the administration uh that was being racist and sexist in saying that it doesn't matter if you're more qualified in all sorts of ways, as long as you're not the the correct uh, preferred race and gender, you're, you're, you're not going to make it. And I I found that offensive and I was upset and uh, that's what led to that tweet. Yeah. I'm sure you have thought about this as well. And you used the word toxic a few minutes ago to talk about the state of discourse in the country. And I think just impartially from my perspective, this kind of cancellation can happen to anyone at any time who is using these mediums and no one is perfect and no one has an ability to predict how a misplaced word or an unartfully made statement is going to be interpreted by you know hundreds or thousands of people who have power over your life um what do you think more as a high level philosophy the country should adopt or should consider as a move in the right direction related to misstatements, um, people putting their foot in their mouth, apologizing in general, which I know you have done. What's the, what's the, for all of us, for our common humanity, what is the mentality that you think we should adopt to begin to have some grace um, to begin to adopt more of a good faith attitude towards our fellow citizens? Well, grace is, is the word. 
uh, I think we've lost a sense of grace. Uh, Barry Weiss, who I've gotten to know through this um, through this process, um, you know, famous New York Times uh, opinion writer who ended up leaving the Times uh, for you know, being in a hostile environment, now has one of the leading substacks and just produces very interesting work. I, I commend that to her, to you. Um, and I've gotten to know Barry. She wrote a piece uh, in the early days of of my scandal, uh, talking about this and the sense of apology. Uh, and the meaning of apologies, uh, but it's not even just about apologies, which for the most part are, are taken as admissions of guilt and don't uh, achieve uh, uh, anything uh, really, but it's just a sense of grace. And it's just don't assume the absolute worst every time someone says something um, that's that's inartful. Um, uh, but that's about it. And it would it would take, uh, you know, uh, respecting those who you disagree with. Um, and I think that's lacking, particularly on the left these days, um, although you know, many on the right uh, uh, also um, engage in, in, in some kind of uh, mob-like uh, behavior. But given that the, the commanding heights of the culture and, and media are controlled by the left, it, it, it's, it um, I think, resounds more uh, there. But in general, it's just, um, you know, we can't have a country if everybody mistrusts each other all the time. And we're at, a I think, a record low of social and institutional trust at this point. Um, the Supreme Court, for that matter, is part of that. The Supreme Court is still respected more than any other institution at a national level, short of the military, according to polling data. But it's, um, that's, you know, that, that's gone down uh, as well. Um, it's no way to run a country when, when everybody mistrusts each other all the time. Yeah. We emailed about this a few days ago that it, I think it was last week you were at UC Hastings and... Uh, you know, I, I have seen the videos of, I assume that you had been asked to go out there to give a talk on constitutional law or American history or one of the subjects in which you're an expert. And I know this has happened to other public intellectuals in the past who have either put their foot in their mouth or are represented on campus as being a deplorable human being in some way. Um, and I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about that experience at UC Hastings and maybe more than that, to be graceful to the students who are protesting you, how you think they have gotten to the place where they are silencing you or attempting to shut you up on campus and not allow a public intellectual to share their views about some subject in which they are truly an expert, you know, it, it, just personally, I see a younger me in a lot of those students in the sense that they are apt to try to find a cause of righteousness to get behind and provide some meaning in their life for you know the better angels of their own nature you know obviously i i think personally they're off base in this individual case but for those kids who who did that how do you think they think about you right like what what do you think is motivating them whether they're correct or incorrect in their judgment call to do what they did to be as animated as they were to disallow you from actually speaking on campus. Yeah, I have to be careful what I 
say here too, because I think it's probably part of the Georgetown's investigation has, has become that. Um, yeah. I was invited to speak at, at Hastings Law um, before uh, before my tweet. Yeah. Um, you know, people are still interested in my book. They 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 know that it's you know vacancies are going to happen. That Breyer was likely going to retire this year. Um, you know that was that was no that was an open secret, uh, I guess, or the conventional wisdom. And so we scheduled this uh, this event um, uh, for what was it March first? So almost two weeks ago, as we're recording this podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, they shouted me down. Uh, uh, I was introduced. I came to speak. Um, students started uh, shouting and banging tables and chanting. Um, which went on for uh, the whole period, the whole hour that that the, that the event was uh, allotted, um, because they felt I wasn't um, worthy of of being given a public platform uh, in light of my tweet. Um, at one point, one of the deans, um, well, one of the deans first of all was shouted down and not not allowed to speak. Then another dean came when I was went out of the room to talk to the officers of the Federal Society who had invited me about what they wanted to do and how we should proceed. Uh, another dean uh, came up and, and was allowed to say a few sentences about how the students were violating school policy, that they were allowed to uh, protest, but they weren't allowed to disrupt and, and shut down uh, events. Um, but that didn't change um, their behavior. Um, you can watch the video. This has all been written up in different news sources. And so I, I went back and, and again, was not uh, allowed to speak. You know, I stayed for the whole hour that the event was allotted and, and then left. Um, the next day, uh, the Hastings leadership, the president and the provost, uh, sent out a, an email to the community about how the protesters' behavior violated the school code and spelled out exactly how that was and um, that I was a duly invited speaker. And especially as a public institution, University of California, uh, the administration cannot uh, uh, decide uh, based on speakers' contents who gets to speak or not. That would be a violation of the First Amendment. Um and that's that. Um, as far as I know, there haven't been any disciplinary actions taken, but there are, you know, obviously the community is still embroiled and in discussions and there's statements going back and forth and it's being discussed on campus. Um, I don't I don't know if I can say any more uh, about that. I, I do think that, you know, I can't say that I'm, I'm against a heckler's veto that is, you know, not allowing speakers to, to speak based on the content of their speech or because of fear that that someone who is opposed or or, or might be offended uh, uh, won't like it. Um, that's the antithesis of our uh, the American idea of of the freedom of speech and, and freedom of expression, um, whether in an academic setting or otherwise. In an academic setting, it, it goes I think doubly so. We're supposed to seek out free inquiry and and things like that. Um, uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes at, at Hastings. We'll see where. The investigation at Georgetown uh, ends up with, uh, but I will say that I've done now, I think, 12 public events, something like that, since my scandal broke. And that, that's the only one where uh, where I've been protested. Yeah. And again, it, I, if you can't speak to this, I, I very much understand. But what what were they alleging? Right. Like what, what were they if they were chanting what was being said about you? What, what kind of allegations were being leveled against you personally? Well, the the videos speak for themselves. They're saying that I'm racist and my tweet was racist and therefore I shouldn't be allowed to speak. 
Yeah. I know we're getting towards the latter part of the conversation. And I'd love to try to bring this back full circle to your own family story, which I think is... I'm all, I love that uh, America is that magnet for families like you know your parents, who I know went to Canada, but the West in general, of places of refuge for people who are trying to have a better life, have a freer life. You know, as a commentator on the culture in general right now, and I, I last week I had Maud Moran on the podcast, and and uh, I don't know if you know her story, but she had similar allegations be uh, leveled at her um, by the Legal Aid Society, which is her former former employer. And she wrote in an article that uh, Barry Barry Weiss wrote an article, and she was quoted in there saying that her surprise as a mother of four that uh, one of her primary worries about their future is creeping totalitarianism in, in America. That I think that's basically a direct quote from her. You know, your family fled a totalitarian state; they left an authoritarian political system and the optimist in me hopes that instances like this are more noteworthy and are getting more attention than the norm but it it still to me is a problem that uh the attempts and the knee-jerk reaction to silence those who disagree with you and to discredit them to ruin their reputation is a a bit of a fetish right now uh in the country and as we wind the conversation down i would love for for you to talk about you know why you think it matters that we adopt an ethos of reasonable people being able to disagree with each other that uh, you know the freedom of speech is the largely the basis upon which our free society operates. How do you think about the state of affairs related to free speech now? I think it's easy for a lot of people to believe that it's it's worse today than it's ever been. Obviously, we've had free speech issues in the country in our own history. How do you assess the state of that particular issue in 2022 from your perspective? Yeah, cancel culture and um, the idea that, say, hate speech should not be allowed, however one defines hate speech or offensive speech, um, that's definitely grown and become much, much worse than 10 years ago or when I was in college now, 23 years ago, um, or law school. Um, uh, the fact that that students are, are or Americans more broadly are are afraid of letting their their true views on various things be known uh, is is unhealthy uh, to say the least in in a society. I, you know, I don't think I have any quick or easy fixes. Um, I offered when 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 Whoopi Goldberg had her thing, I, I tweeted out at her and and Joe Rogan. You know, maybe she and I need to go on Joe Rogan, or maybe Bill Maher. Uh, you know, he has his show that's irreverent and. Um, often tries to skewer sacred cows and things like that. Um, there has to be a way to break through. Um, but the unfortunate thing is that 
a lot of these illiberal tendencies where we can't even discuss controversies, um, that comes from K to 12 and college educators themselves. Uh, and so the younger generation is, is brought up to think that certain ideas uh, aren't just, you know, I disagree with that, or that's a bad analysis, but uh, because it's bad analysis, it just shouldn't be allowed um, and um, needs to be you know, canceled. And anyone who thinks that way should be, you know, not allowed in polite society at the end of the day, even to the point where a certain still minority, uh, but uh, alarming uh, minority of college students think that, you know, violence is even justified sometimes to shut down certain, um, certain ideas. Yeah. Uh, that's dangerous. You know, when I was in college, the, the, you know, the, the thinking among the grownups was, well, some of these, some of these crazy things that that's just, that's just, that's just college. That's just the campus thing. People will grow up and grow out of it. Well, no, now it's, you know, it's in corporate HR offices. It's uh, it's among the the adults uh, these days. Now, as a as a proud Gen Xer, I, I blame the millennials uh, uh, for for continuing, you know, building on and, and exacerbating some of some of the problems of the boomers. Uh, well, we're well, we get lost in the shuffle. But um, uh, you know, I, I again, I, these these tendencies, these trends are are just not good, um, and. You know, some people blame Donald Trump. I mean, like, look, he's a symptom or the the, the extent to which uh, someone who's polarizing or, you know, uh, angers people gets elected. That's a symptom of our larger uh, problems. It's not that that, that Trump created the uh, the environment, the toxic environment that, that we've been discussing. Yeah. Last question I'd love I'd love to ask you, and I, I brought this up to Maude last week when I talked to her as well, which is is about forgiveness and um, I would love to, you know, just from my vantage point, right? These, these kids who are leveling these charges against you, they, they don't know you, you know, they, they know a perspective that may have been given about you, but I'd be shocked if they actually knew your history, your family's history, uh, your immigration into the country, the reasons for why you want to be here in the first place you know, the, the common humanity between you and these students, you know, there, there isn't a, a bridge there to allow, uh, you know, a, a form of mutual respect and understanding to, to happen. And for, for one of, let's say one of those students is watching this conversation who didn't know anything about you and now knows a whole lot more about you. Um, your history, your love of the country, what you stand for as a person, even if they disagree with you politically on some of your political philosophy, you know, what would you say to them? Um, you know, they've leveled some pretty ugly and harsh judgments against you in their silencing of you and, in protesting you on campus. Um, but people change and people can change their mind. What do you say to a student like that who wants to give you the benefit of the doubt and learn more about you and watches a program like this? Um, is there room for forgiveness for people like that, even who level such allegations against you in your mind? And what in general would you say to a student like that? Well, I can't get into other people's minds. Um, 
there's certainly it's certainly easier to behave in certain ways when that your target is a is a symbol or a caricature um i imagine it would be you know uncomfortable to to sit down one-on-one with me um you know i don't know why people sign letters i don't know why people sign you know you know join join protest there's social pressures of various kinds um I don't, you know, I'm not naive enough to to think that there's just, you know, just have a one-on-one. If I'm just able to speak with every last one of my detractors, I can change all their minds. Um, uh, I think I think it has to come earlier, and it's a different process. Um, I'm sure, you know, some of them, and not just at Hastings. You know, there there are lots of signatories. I think like a thousand signatories to the black law students association letter at, at Georgetown uh, law um, that came out a few days after my tweet. Um, again, it's not like when you're asked to sign a letter that you investigate the whole thing and, and you, you figure out and you learn about the person or anything like that. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think it would take uh, a much more disruptive event than simply, you know, an offer to sit down. I think a lot of people don't, don't want to hear that. Um, um, you know, the, the long-term solution would be, you know, kind of something like what, uh, Robbie George and Cornell West, uh, at Princeton have done, you know, mm-hmm. radically opposed politically, but have modeled uh, civil debate and have shown how they can vehemently disagree, uh, not just with policy prescriptions, but underlying premises and worldviews and yet respect each other. And they call each other brother. Mm-hmm. and uh, and discuss uh, and debate uh it would take stuff like that at a much higher and sustained level on you know major media uh to be able to start shifting um the cultural discourse yeah i think that would be a start too um thank you so much for doing this man thanks for spending so much time with me and and sharing the the story in detail um i really appreciate it my pleasure Maybe this is some some sort of uh, some sort of therapy. Just just don't send me a, a bill later. <laughs> I'll work on that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.